You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. This title, I want to first explain some terms in this title, why the biblical celestial disturbance event supports the pre-wrath rapture. Notice I qualified the celestial disturbance event with the biblical celestial disturbance event. I'm emphasizing uh, the, that it's, it's biblical in contrast to some isolated so-called blood moon or some other type of eclipse. Now, there are books out there today trying to connect the blood moons uh, with these, uh, with this biblical account in Joel and, and the biblical account in, in the Olive Discourse, Matthew 24, and Luke, Mark, uh, as well as in Revelation 6 with the sixth seal. Uh, but uh, this, uh, this is not the case because, as I'm going to uh, explain later in the show, because the biblical account of these celestial disturbances, as we see, will convey a cluster of events, not, uh, again, not isolated or separated by months or even years. In fact, when the Bible describes these events, uh, there is a, an immediate response in conjunction to these events. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the wicked, they're, they're mourning when they see these events. Uh, the, they're, they're, they're fainting in fear. Uh, now, last time I checked, you know, the, the blood moon, the last blood moon, uh, I don't recall anyone fainting or, or the wicked mourning over the blood moon. You know the blood moons uh, that are happening at this time. You know, and corresponding with the Jewish feast. Uh, I'm not going to rule out that they don't have any prophetic significance, but don't make the mistake as many popular prophecy teachers are doing today, and they're trying to connect. Uh, these quote-unquote so-called blood moons to to Joel's account, and as as if they're fulfillments of that account and, and Matthew's account in the sixth seal, they cannot be because of the context, the context of uh, these biblical accounts. And these prophecy teachers are basically lifting uh, these biblical celestial disturbances out from its context. So I'm going to explain uh, about these biblical celestial disturbances and why it supports the the position of what's called the pre-wrath rapture. Now, for those who may not know what the pre-wrath rapture is, let me quickly uh, summarize it. Uh, and then I'm going to explain why this is important for the church. Uh, the pre-wrath rapture basically says that... <clears throat> that God has ordained the last generation of the church to experience an unprecedented persecution before his return, before his return to judge this wicked world. Uh, so pre-wrath makes a biblical distinction between the Antichrist Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord's Wrath. They are not the same event. 
And that's where a lot of confusion comes in. Pre-tribulationism that says that, you know, Christ can come back at any moment and then, you know, there's no prophesied events that must occur before Christ returning to rapture his people. Uh, they mistakenly confuse the Great Tribulation, which has to happen before the rapture, uh, with the Day of the Lord's Wrath, which will happen after the, ra- after the, uh, the rapture. So that's kind of a basic summary of the pre-wrath rapture, and it will be, uh, I will develop that more here uh, in this show. <clears throat> but why is this important anyway? I mean, what's what's the big deal? Why, uh, why study this? Why is this important? Well, it's interesting that in the context, in the context of the celestial disturbance event that Jesus describes in Matthew 24, he says in verse 25, he says, remember, I have told you these things. Actually, remember, I have told you ahead of time. He didn't simply say, hey, I'm warning you, this is going to happen. No, he says it in an ominous way. Uh, I have told you ahead of time. In other words, what's being implied is when these things happen, it's going to be too late to get your spiritual house in order. Understand it now. And I'm, I'm saddened that much of the church you know, disregards this text. In fact, pre-tribulationists will say Matthew 24 has nothing to do with the church. These are events that the church is not going to experience. Now, I'm sorry, but if you're going to, if you're going to dismiss a warning from Jesus himself saying that has, doesn't apply to the church, you better know for certain that you are right. Because there will be consequences. You will have to stand before God Almighty one day and explain, why did you relegate my son's warning to some other group of people and not for his people? It's a dire warning. So that's another uh, that's a reason why um, this is important. Another reason is, <clears throat> well, look at the parables. After Jesus describes the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, and he uh, describes his parousia coming on the, uh, the clouds, his return. Uh, he then spends illustrating uh, his return. And one of these parables he uses is the ten virgins. Now, to say that the ten virgins does not apply to the church, which pre-tribulationism needs to consistently say that the ten virgins is not for the church, they'll say it's like, well, oh, it's, it's applied to quote-unquote, tribulation saints or uh, Jewish believers during the quote-unquote tribulation period, once again, you have better be certain that uh, that these warnings do not apply to the church. And the sad thing is, they're mistaken. They do apply to the church. They, be- they, they apply to every generation of the church, every believer these warnings apply to, because Christ can return, not at any moment, but he can return in any generation. You know, another reason why this is very important is, and I've already touched on this, and that is in Matthew 24, as we'll see, these celestial disturbances will happen happen after the Antichrist Great Tribulation, which means the church is going to encounter the Antichrist Great Tribulation. So, the, the fact that the, that the church will face the Antichrist sort of makes this a kind of a relevant uh, teaching for the church today. In Revelation 14, 9 through 12, 
Jesus, of course, it's a revelation of Jesus, right? Uh, but there's an angel, angelic warning uh, that connects uh, the very destiny of our souls with this issue. So, you know, contra those who say, well, you know, they, they want to disconnect eschatology from, from salvation. And yet Jesus ties these together. In fact, your very soul may depend on how you understand this issue. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at the word of God, Revelation 14, 9 through 12. A third angel followed the first two, declaring in a loud voice, if anyone, okay, it's not, well, if some people, right? No, this is unequivocal. If anyone worships the beast and his image and takes the mark on his forehead or on or his hand, that person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath, and he will be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb. And the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever, and those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night, along with anyone who receives the mark of his name. And notice what follows after this warning. It's a warning to God's people. This requires the steadfast endurance of the saints, those who obey God's commandments and hold to their faith in Jesus. I mean, this one passage right here is sufficient to argue that this is this issue is applicable to the church. So, <clears throat> we have these warnings from our Lord. And by the way, the, the, the Revelation 14 text, this is one of the most, if not the most graphic passage of hell in the entire Bible. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the most graphic, ominous description of eternal punishment is in the direct context of the of eschatology, the Antichrist Great Tribulation. So once again, uh, eschatology matters. And those who poo-poo it, uh, especially those who shepherd the flock, are going to have to give an account to God one day who ignore this passage. This is a sober warning for God's people. And the last generation of, of the church will face the Antichrist Great Tribulation. And that's why every generation of the church, because we don't know which generation of the church is going to be the last. So we have to take it as if we are the last generation of the church. I, uh, I, I'm going to use a method of interpre interpretation that believe, believers have been using for centuries. Uh, the, and that is the, it's actually a very common sense interpretation, and that is, interpreting the implicit in light of the explicit. So you begin with explicit passages. And you take these passages and you just, uh, you know, you, and then you take implicit passages and you interpret these explicit passages. And when we see a pervading theme over uh, and over again, it, it is incumbent upon the student of prophecy to listen 
or read closely to what it is trying to tell us. And this pervading theme or event that we see in our instance here is the celestial disturbance event. It's very interesting that this event shows up in key end-time passages that announce the day of the Lord's wrath. So we need to listen very closely to what it is trying to tell us. So we're going to look at four key passages that contain this vital event. And at the end of it, it's going to give us this beautiful composite connecting key events together. The four passages will be in Joel 2, Matthew 24, Luke 21, and then Revelation 6 with the sixth seal. And each one of these is going to give us a key piece of information uh, that will paint this picture for us. So we begin with Joel 2, 30, 31. You know, there's <clears throat> a, few passage, a few books in the Bible that are completely devoted to the day of the Lord. This is one, Joel. Uh, and, well, 1 Thessalonians is, 2 Thessalonians, and what one could argue maybe Obadiah is. So maybe we have, what, four, four books in the Bible that are completely devoted to the day of the Lord. And I'd say Reve- Revelation is, but uh, just part of Revelation is devoted to the day of the Lord, not the entire uh, book of Revelation. So Joel 2, 30, 31 reads, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, before we get into this key piece of information that Joel provides, it's a very foundational piece of information. I want to say a few words about the nature of the day of the Lord's wrath. Uh, when I say the day of the Lord's wrath, I'm not talking about a literal 24-hour day. Uh, the prophets use this expression to denote, you know, a complex whole and epic period of time, right? Uh, this is where where many judgment elements, you know, God's wrath will be poured over uh, during a course of time, okay? Uh, for example, even when we go to the New Testament, uh, we see it as a complex whole as well. The judgments uh, of the trumpet and bow judgments, God's wrath. And I'll explain later why the seals is not God's wrath. But the trumpet judgments is God's wrath. The bow judgments are are God's wrath. Even the fifth trumpet judgment says it's going to last five months. And the the seventh trumpet, a few days or days. So, uh, and, and by the way, this is not, this is not unusual because we've seen God's systematic judgments before. Where have we seen that? Yeah, the plagues on Egypt, right? That was systematic. That wasn't like some snap of the finger, you know, and boom, poof, you know, you know, God's judgment was poured out in a single day or, or um, within a, you know, a moment or, or, or whatnot. Now, God has actually, you know, he, he can pour out his judgment in a single day, but the texts show, they convey that this is going to be a complex whole. It's going to be a time when the Lord is alone is exalted. Uh, Antichrist will be rendered useless. Oh, sure, Antichrist will try to fight back, <laughs> right? Uh, but it will be the Lord alone who will be exalted during that day, even though the Antichrist will try to reassert his authority, but it will be to no avail. You know, the purpose of the judgment, of his judgment, the day of the Lord's wrath is going to be judgment, reckoning, vengeance, punishment, just, justice. Uh, it will be furry, 
Burning anger, destruction, panic, subjugation, confusion, tumult, doom, battle. It will be awesome. And it will be unique. So returning to our text in Joel. So Joel gives us the first piece of information. That is, it's going to happen before. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now listen, if, if language means anything, this is an it's an explicit temporal marker. Okay, it's not it's not after the day of the Lord, it's not during the day of the Lord. Although there will by the way, there will be celestial type of disturbances during the day of the Lord. But as far as this specific discernible cluster event, it's gonna happen before the day of the Lord. And we're gonna see that the the New Testament passages are consistent with teaching this concept of it's before the day of the Lord. So we're using our principle of interpretation of interpreting the implicit in light of the explicit. The explicit is we know that the celestial disturbance will happen before the day of the Lord. Okay, our second passage, Matthew 24, 29 uh, which will provide us with a second piece of, of information, building this composite, this, this eschatological composite, connecting key events with, with each other. And in Matthew 24, <clears throat> this is Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus will, will draw from actually Joel in his Olivet Discourse, uh, and in the select in Matthew twenty four twenty nine, uh, you have another this another passage on the the celestial disturbance event. But a little bit of context, I think, is helpful. So uh, you have the Olivet discourse, right? G- uh, in before Matthew twenty four, Jesus had this climactic encounter with the with the Jewish leadership. And he walks, he walks away from the temple. He's going to the, you know, Mount of Olives and, and the disciples, you know, they've been following him for three years and they, uh, they're besides himself and they're trying to salvage something from this, uh, for, uh, from this, what they consider as a, a disaster, uh, this encounter between Jesus and, and the Jewish leadership. And so they try to, you know, uh, draw Jesus's attention back to the beautiful temple buildings, and of course Jesus, you know, he he's not going to have none of that. Uh, in fact, he's going to turn to them and say, "You see those buildings that you admire so much, th- that religious externalities. Well, not one stone will be left upon each other." And that, of course, that prophecy came true in AD seventy. Now, in the in the disciples' minds. When they hear that prophecy, they're, we don't know exactly why or how, but somehow they're connecting that destruction with the abomination of desolation. And, or, um, I'm sorry, they're, they're connecting that with the, um, uh, the end of the age and, and his return, which is why their response to Jesus is to ask, well, when would that happen? What would be the sign of your, your coming in the end of the age? So they're, they're, trying, they're connecting... Uh, that, but Jesus will challenge their their kingdom categories, and he will show that they're that that they're not so much connected. In fact, it will 
uh, there will be the the end of the age uh, will be brought about by the return of Christ. There's a lot of confusion out there. I'm not sure. It's not that difficult, I don't believe, to understand this between the end of the age and the parousia. Uh, the a parousia will bring about the end of the age. I mean, that's we see that in Matthew 24. We we Jesus takes us up to, to the end of verse 14. And then he begins this parenthetical section that ends in verses 31, 32, around there. Uh, but so, so the disciples ask him, what is the sign you're coming in the end of the age? And Jesus responds. He doesn't give the answer right away what the sign is. And it, it's, it, it's as if he's like, oh, you, you want to see the kingdom to you. Well, guess what? You're going to have to suffer first. And so he gives this lengthy discourse on the abomination, desolation, the great tribulation, and he talks about the uh, this great tribulation that will be cut short for the sake of the elect, because we have to remember Satan wants to exterminate every single believer. That's his goal. Uh, but uh, God is going to um, thwart his purposes. Great tribulation cuts short, and then Jesus talks. Uh, actually, then he gives the sign, which is the this lightning that shines from the uh, east to west, and and the and it, in my view, that's the Shekinah glory. That when when Christ appears on the clouds, it will be his brilliance, his manifestation, is uh, and that will be that uh, that brilliance in which will be the true sign will authenticate the true uh, messianic. Uh, presence of of Jesus, and then we're and then we're uh, taken to the celestial disturbance event in verse twenty nine. In fact, let me read that. It says immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, notice it says immediately after the suffering of those days. Well, what days? Well, of course, the, the, the days of tribulation, the great, what he calls the great tribulation. So these celestial disturbances, Jesus explicitly says will happen after the, uh, after the, the, the great tribulation, the suffering of those days. All right, and that, so here we have evidence that there is a distinction between the great tribulation and what will come afterwards, the day of the Lord's wrath. So, Joel says that the celestial disturbances will happen before the day of the Lord. And yet, here Jesus says that the celestial disturbances are going to happen after the great tribulation. Now, do you see this composite being developed here? Uh, there's a splicing going on. The splicing has the celestial disturbances connecting two key events. The, the Antichrist Great Tribulation will happen first, and that will be cut short with the celestial disturbances and the return of Christ in the clouds. And then you have the day of the Lord's wrath occurring. In verse 30, uh, it says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
So the, the parousia begins with Christ coming on the clouds. That's actually important. Remember, there's a lot of people who believe that the second coming happens with when Christ physically comes to earth. That's not, that's not the case. Christ's second coming, his parousia presence, will begin when he actually comes on the clouds. And by the way, not just in Jesus' teaching, you can see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 15. Uh, well, 15 through 17, the parousia, Paul teaches, happens when Christ comes on the on the clouds. And, and it just makes sense that he's consistent with Jesus because he's actually drawing his, his teaching from the Olivet dis- Discourse. Uh, and then in verse 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast and will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Matthew 24, 31. Uh, I believe that this gathering is the rapture, and we'll have more to say about this later in, in the show. Uh, in fact, in my, in my book, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Return of, of Christ, on page 87, I begin a lengthy discussion giving four reasons, four reasons why Matthew 24, 31, the reference, the gathering of it, of his elect, why that is a reference to the rapture. So I give uh, four concrete biblical reasons. And later on in in the show, I'm going to touch on this as well with one of those reasons, actually two of those reasons. So, Okay, so just to recap, Joel says it's going to happen before the day of the Lord. Jesus in Matthew 24 says it's going to happen after the great tribulation or the the persecution of those days. And then our third text is Luke 21, 25 through 28. Luke is going to give us a third piece of information, which is going to be two opposite or polar responses when these celestial disturbances begin. Luke 21 Beginning in verse 25, it says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, and on the earth nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. People will be fainting from fear and from the expectation of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to happen, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Luke's account, by the way, uh, in Ma- the all of the discourse is found not just in Matthew 24 and 25, but Luke 21 and Mark 13. And here in Luke's account, the third piece of information is, is, is that when these celestial disturbances happen, no, the response is going to be, well, no one's going to be sitting on the fence. Let me just say that. Uh, Luke is going to say there's two polar responses. One is that the wicked, the wicked are going to experience apprehension, fainting from fear of what is going to expect to come on the world because the celestial disturbances, they announce, they signal, or they're a harbinger of the day of the Lord's wrath. However, for the for the the godly, they are told 
that when these things begin to happen, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And actually, Luke gives us uh, more information, not just the two polar responses, but Luke adds a terrestrial dimension to this celestial event. In fact, we could call it the celestial terrestrial disturbances. You know, I mean, you, I guess you could call it that. Uh, say it, you know, it's kind of a tongue twister. You try to say that 10 times real fast. Uh, but, <clears throat> but there is a terrestrial dimension here. And the terrestrial dis- dimension is that it says that the there's going to be the 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 nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. The last time I checked, nations do not faint or in fear over six foot waves. I believe that these waves are most likely going to be global tsunamis. And it's very interesting that the, the Greek word behind this, the surging waves, uh, is solos. It's a, it was a term in Greek literature that could be applied to earthquakes, which is very interesting because what causes tsunamis? Earthquakes. So you have celestial, terrestrial disturbances. The wicked is seeing the experiencing the instability they're looking up in the sky they're seeing the instability of the sky and then they're actually feeling the the instability on the ground because it's the lord the lord alone will be exalted in that day well at least technically it's the celestial disturbances will announce the day of the lord's wrath it's sort of a uh, like a prelude as, as I said they they will harbinger they will they will signal or portend of what is coming. That's why it says from the expectation of what is coming upon uh, the world. Okay, let's move into our most, the, the, the fourth passage. And that this is the most descriptive passage that ties them all together. And that's Revelation, in Revelation 6, the sixth seal. And in Revelation, you have a scroll, has seven seals on it. Okay, seven, seven seals on the scroll. And I believe that these seven seals, they represent conditions. These conditions, these seven conditions, they have to be met before the scroll is opened. And what is in the scroll? Well, the contents of the trumpet and bowl judgments. It's God's wrath. Antiquity, it was very common to have one seal on a scroll. But on occasion, on special Documents, you could have more seals. You could have multiple uh, seals. About 50 years ago, or just over 50, 60 years ago, there was an actual discovery of a, in Israel, a scroll with, guess what? Seven seals on the scroll. It was actually still intact. The seven seals still intact. Uh, in my book, in the in the appendix, I when I published the book, I received permission from a, uh, a museum uh, in, in Israel uh, to be able to publish a photograph of this. Now, the, the photograph is actually two photographs. I don't have the photograph of the actual seven seals on the scroll. They, you know, would, of course, they took off the seals to, because they wanted to see the contents of the scroll. So, uh, but there are two photographs of the actual scroll. Uh, you can see the seven seals 
in one photograph in the actual scroll that contained the seven seals, and that is in my book, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord. It's one of the uh, appendices. But the scroll, okay, so you have a scroll, seven seals on the scroll, and I'm not going to get into the first four seals. Uh, that would take some time. Conditions that have to be met, you have war, famine, etc. I do expound on the first four seals in my book. Uh, but for our purposes today, I'm focusing on the sixth seal, the celestial disturbances. So I'm not going to get into the first four seals. Uh, I do want to mention something about the fifth seal because the fifth seal is, does have some connection with the with the sixth seal. Let me read the, the account of the fifth seal in Revelation 6, starting in verse 9. Now, when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been violently killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony they have given. They cried out with a loud voice, How long, sovereign master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Each of them was given a long white robe, and they were told to rest for a little longer until the full number was reached of both their fellow servants and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. Now, <clears throat> those who say that the seals are God's wrath are just completely wrong. I mean, how, how do you account for the fifth seal? Because pre-tribulationist, you know, the pre-wrath view agrees with pre-tribulationism that says that, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that we are not, we are promised exemption from the eschatological day of the Lord's wrath. Okay, we agree with that. Uh, and yet they're they they contradict contradict themselves because they'll say that the seals are God's wrath. And yet here the fifth seal, especially the fifth seal, says that it's a it's it's uh it's martyrdom against God's people. This is not God's wrath. In fact, notice what it's notice what the martyrs themselves are saying. They're saying, How long, sovereign master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So the martyrs themselves recognize that this their uh their plight is not a result of the day of the Lord's judgment. And by the way, it's confirmed by the divine or the heavenly answer given to them because it said, each of them was given a long white robe and they were told to rest. Notice they're given a white robe. They're not wearing it. They're given it as if it's like, hey, it's a guarantee. You know, your, your prayers are going to be answered very soon. You're going to have your re resurrection, right? And they're told to rest a little longer until the full number was reached of both their fellow servants and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. So in God's infinite wisdom and goodness, there is a determined amount of martyrs who must be martyred first before God will return and judge the wicked. So the fifth seal cannot be God's judgment. This is the fifth seal explicitly uh, disproves the pre-tribulational belief that the seals are God's wrath. In fact, they're pointing to the God's wrath. And of course, we will see now with the sixth seal, it also, the sixth seal, remember, it will happen before the day of the Lord's wrath, Joel says. And here, we're going to see that's very consistent, that the day of the Lord's judgment has not happened yet. 
The scroll has to be open. All seven seals have to be broken. So Revelation 6, uh, starting verse 13, says, Then I looked when the Lamb opened the sixth seal, and I... And a huge earthquake took place. The sun became as black as sackcloth made of hair, and the, and the full moon became blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree, dropping its unripe figs when shaken by a fierce wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the very important people, the generals, the rich, the powerful, the everyone, slaves and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb." Because the day, the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to withstand it? So uh, that's Revelation, uh, Revelation six. The the uh, the sixth seal is expressing this graphic portrayal of the celestial disturbance event. So the the wicked recognize they're interpreting the sixth seal correctly that hey god's wrath is impending and this is a warning that it's about to begin i wanted to highlight that in the first verse it does say that a huge earthquake took place a huge earthquake and that might be tied in by the way with luke's account about the tsunami language as well okay so you have here you have four passages on the celestial disturbance event and they build this composite demonstrating that there's a distinction between the Antichrist Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord's Wrath. Will, uh, the, the event functions to, to portend the, the wrath of God. Uh, I do want to mention the seventh seal in the uh, book of Revelation. So you have seven seals total. And it's very interesting because the account in Revelation 6 and 7 and 8, okay, so you have seven seals. The first one is broken, and then the second one is broken. The third one is broken. The fourth one is broken. The fifth one is broken. The sixth one is broken. And then before the seventh seal is broken, there's this conspicuous break in the narrative, and that's highly significant uh, because this break in Revelation 7 has two groups of people being delivered, being protected. Why, are they be, why this break? Why are they being protected before the seventh seal is opened? Well, it makes sense because the seventh seal, once the seventh seal is broken, you have the scroll open and, and then you have the contents of God's judgment being poured out. So in, in uh, two groups of people, the first group is 144,000 Jews who are protected, and I believe it's part of the remnant that God will save uh, when his son uh, returns. But I want to focus on this, this, this other group uh, that's described as an innumerable group who appeared in heaven having bodies, and they're wearing white robes, and they're praising God for their deliverance. In Revelation 7, 9, it begins saying, <clears throat> After these things I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, 
made up of persons from every tribe, nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. Of course, that indicates they're they're praising God for their salvation, which is why it says in verse 10, they were shouting out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels stood there in a circle around the throne and around the elders and, and the four living creatures. And they were, and they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is where it gets very interesting because in verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders asked me, and that would be John, these dressed in long white robes, now they're dressed in white long robes, right? That indicates a resurrection has happened. Who are they? And where have they come from. Now, you have to keep in perspective, for John, the church was like this, you know, at the end of the first century, this, you know, just pockets of people in Asia Minor and Israel. And it wasn't this global millions of Christians, right? So John's like, well, you know, who are they? This is, this is right? This is new to John. He's, he's, he's a bit stunned here with, And verse 14, it says, So I said to him, My Lord, you know the answer. Then he said to me, These are the ones, this innumerable group who who has now appeared in heaven, they have resurrected bodies, right? It says, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, If we just do our basic common sense uh, principle of interpretation of comparing Scripture with Scripture, we see that there is a consistent pattern here because this is strikingly similar. In fact, it's the same sequence that we find in Jesus' account because in Jesus' account, the, the gathering of the elect come out of the great tribulation when it's cut short. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because the all of the discourse is what? It's a teaching from Jesus. And what is the source of the book of Revelation? It's a revelation of Jesus, right? So there's a consistent sequence here. In Matthew 24, you have the, the great tribulation of persecution against God's people. In Revelation, the fifth seal, persecution against God's people. And then you have the... In Matthew 24, you have the next event, the celestial disturbances. In Revelation, it's the sixth seal, is the celestial disturbances. And then Matthew 24, uh, you have the gathering of the elect. In Revelation, the next event is what? The gathering of the elect, the, the God's people coming out of the great tribulation. And then it doesn't stop there, but there's another very important sequential event, and that is in Matthew 24, when he returns on the clouds, he's coming to judge the world, which is why he uses the Noahic illustrations about judgment. And what do you have in Revelation? The 
Revelation 7 begins the, well, you have the opening of the seventh, I'm sorry, Revelation 8, you have the opening of the, of the seventh seal, which is God's judgment. It contains the trumpet and the bow judgments. So it's, it's consistent. The pre-wrath position is consistent. We're not, I'm not trying to, you know, strain any scripture here or try to make things fit. I'm just doing a, I, what I believe is just a natural comparison of scripture. So, <clears throat> um, and I, I like to use this expression uh, to, to summarize some of the, the, the seals in Revelation 6 and 7 and, and 8. I like to say that the fifth seal promises wrath. The sixth seal portends wrath. An interlude in Revelation 7 protects from wrath. And the seventh seal pronounces wrath. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 